Hi, Josh. Uh, well, let's begin with the obvious question. What is experimental philosophy? Well, experimental philosophy is this kind of relatively new field that's sort of at the border of philosophy and psychology. So it's a group of people who are doing experiments of much the same kind you would see sort of in, from any front in psychology. But experiments that are informed by this much older kind of intellectual tradition, the tradition of philosophy. So I feel like in a way maybe it could be seen as analogous on a certain level to kind of some of the kind of work that you've done at the border of psychology and economics, that just as that work it uses the normal tools of psychological experiment, but to kind of illuminate issues that would be of interest to economists. Experimental philosophy is a, a field that uses the normal approaches to running psychological experiments, but to run experiments that are some, in some ways informed by these intellectual frameworks that come out of the world of philosophy. Well, uh, I, I read the, re the review that you were the senior author of in Annual Review of Psychology, and, and, and you deal there with four topics. And uh, you know it's all very summarized, and I don't pretend that I understood it all. But I was struck by the fact that you run psychological experiments. And, and you explain the results. So there is something that sounds like a psychological theory. And, and yet there was a characteristic difference, I think, which I was finding, trying to get my sort of my fingers on. Uh, there is a difference between the kind of explanations that you guys seem to produce and, and the kinds of explanation that I would produce. Yeah. I mean, I found myself with an alternative view of every one of the four uh, of the four topics, and I was wondering, could we go into depth on that? I mean, is there a difference? Is there a constraint? Is it because you are philosophers, do you do things differently when you do psychology? Well, you know, I doubt it would be helpful to think about it at that really abstract level. It would probably be helpful to think about one of the individual things. Well. I'll give you two examples of, of the kinds of thing that, that troubled me. That uh, made me curious, let's put it that way. Uh, the first one is on, on your earlier work, I think, on intentionality and, and the role of moral reasoning in, in intentionality. And, and there, I mean, uh, there I think, and this is something we talked about years ago, uh, there seems to be an alternative story which is not the one that you discuss, and it's, it seems to be different in some ways from the one that you discuss. So for me, uh, well, let's first describe, you know, maybe first you describe the phenomenon and then, uh, because otherwise nobody will know what we're talking about. So, okay, yeah. So the key question is just, at first might seem like a really straightforward one. It's just how do people understand whether you did something intentionally or unintentionally? So on purpose or not on purpose? And it might seem at first like this question doesn't have anything to do with morality or anything like that. It just has to do with what someone's mental states were and how those states were related to people's actions. And then the surprising result that we arrive at is that people's moral judgments, people's judgments about whether something's morally good or morally bad, seem to impact their judgments about whether you did it on purpose, whether you did it intentionally. So the example that I think a lot of people may have already heard of involves a vice president and chairman of the board. So the vice president comes to the chairman of the board and says, okay, we've got this new policy. It's gonna make huge amounts of money for our company, but it's also gonna harm the environment. And the chairman of the board says, look, I don't care at all about that. 
I, all I care about is just making as much money as possible. So let's implement the policy. So you implement the policy, and sure enough, it ends up harming the environment. And then participants are just asked, did the chairman of the board harm the environment intentionally? And most people say, yes. And if you ask them why, they say, well, he knew he was going to harm the environment, and he just went ahead and did it anyway. It's just a matter of which mental states he had. But we had the thought, maybe something more is going on here. In particular, maybe what's going on is that people say it's intentionally because they think that harming the environment is bad, that it's bad to harm the environment. And you can see that there might be something to that if you just take the word harm and switch it to help, but you leave everything else the same. So suppose the chairman of the board gets his visit from the vice president, and the vice president says, OK, we've got this new policy. It's going to make huge amounts of money for our company, and it's also going to help the environment. And the chairman of the board says, look, I know it's going to help the environment, but I don't care at all about that. All I care about is just making as much money as possible. So they implement the policy, and then sure enough, it helps the environment. And in that case, participants overwhelmingly say that he helped the environment unintentionally. Yet the only difference is between harm and help. So somehow it seems like the difference between being morally bad and morally good is somehow affecting your intuitions about just whether he did it intentionally or not. OK. Uh, and can you give a sense of how you would explain that? You know, my explanation really draws on some of your early work from the 80s, from this idea of norm theory. So the idea is, consider the actual state that the chairman was in. So his actual state was, he just didn't care at all. He was completely indifferent. So you can think of that state as being a sort of a midpoint on a continuum. So on one hand, you could imagine someone who was trying as hard as he could to produce this goal, either to harm the environment or to help the environment. Or on the other hand, you could imagine someone who was trying as hard as he could to not do it. So someone who was struggling as hard as he could to avoid harming or helping the environment, but ended up harming or helping the environment nonetheless. And the actual state is intermediate. So if we imagine now what it is to do something intentionally, I think broadly speaking, it's just to be pretty far that way. right? So the farther you are that way, the more intentional it is. The farther you are this way, the more unintentional. So the key question now is, when you see someone at a particular state, what do you kind of compare that to? So in the case where he harms the environment, the first thing you compare it to is the state of someone who's trying to avoid harming the environment. And then compared to that, he's pretty, into, pretty willing to harm the environment. Now, in the case where he helps the environment, the first uh, counterfactual that you think of is the counterfactual in which he's actively trying to help the environment. Then compared to that, he seems pretty not into helping the environment. So this intermediate position, the position sort of that's neither here nor there, is seen as, in one case, surprisingly willing, compared to what you would counterfactually consider in that case. And the other case, surprisingly reluctant, compared to the counterfactual you consider in that case. So that's the explanation. Well, I mean, or that I in a way, uh, by yeah. the way, the explanation, I thought, wasn't mentioned in, in, uh, in the annual review yeah. uh, piece. But, <laughs> but what you were saying was that moral judgment pre-exists in some way and infuses regular judgment as if those were two different categories. But uh, my sense was um, that the concept of norm is really quite interesting because it does both things. It speaks of normal and it speaks of normative. And, uh, and it's more abnormal. I mean, it, it, which and now we're linking to what, you, what you're saying. It is more abnormal to, to do bad things than to do good things. Right. I think that's exactly right. So I think it's a mistake to think about it in the way that some researchers maybe have thought about it, that the way the human mind works is somehow there's this gap between our moral judgments and our factual judgments, and then there's just a causal relation between them. Rather, I think what's going on is we have a way of thinking about the world that just doesn't involve that kind of distinction. 
it doesn't make a clear distinction between prescriptive and statistical. So one way we've tried to test this is using exactly this notion that you addressed, the notion of the normal. So in a series of studies, we just ask people about what is the normal amount of various things. Like, what's the normal amount of TV to watch in a day? What's the normal amount of drinks for a mm -hmm. fraternity member to have on a weekend? What's the normal amount of students in a middle school to be bullied? And then we asked for each of those things, another group of people, what's the average amount of those things? So what's the average amount of TV to watch in a day? What's the average amount of drinks for a fraternity member to have on a weekend? And then a third group, what's the ideal? So what's the ideal mm -hmm. amount of TV to watch in a day? What's the ideal amount of drinks to have on a weekend? And then across all of these different items, people tend to think that the normal is intermediate between the average and the ideal. So exactly like you suggest, it seems like we have this notion of the normal that's not just the notion of the average or the notion of the ideal. It's kind of just this mixture. No, no, I, I agree. I mean, that's, that's what I've been interested in is where that notion of the normal comes from. But the way that you talk about it uh, struck me as, as interesting as, as you do talk about it as, as if there were an expectation that uh, cognitive judgment, pure cognitive judgment, would be independent of moral judgment, and then, lo and behold, <laughs> it's not independent. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, why have that expectation? That is, if it is normal, you know, if we're, if we're agreeing that it's all about normality, mm -hmm. and some, some normality comes from relative frequency, and some, but actually all of it comes from relative frequency. Some of it is moral, you know, it's, it's abnormal because it's immoral. And some of it, it's abnormal just because it's rare. Mm -hmm. but, but there is no difference. Mm -hmm. So here you can have the whole theory that doesn't mention morality except at the very end. Mm -hmm. That, you know, the mere fact that, that immorality is abnormal. And that's not quite the way you write it up. I'm trying, yeah. to, I'm trying to distinguish what you do from sort of the kind of psychology that I do. So I feel like our, dis our disagreement seems like a kind of funny one in that it seems like we both disagree about what the right answer is, but we're just kind of disagreeing about whether it's surprising. But maybe the sense in which we found it surprising is against the background of a certain kind of view that a lot, I think a lot of people have about how the mind works. That a lot of people have the this view, the way the mind works is something like there's a certain part of the mind in charge of figuring out how things actually work, and then certain other kinds of representations or cognitive processes in charge of thinking about how things ought to be. And then there are these kind of relations between those, these causal relations. And it's that that we really wanted to attack, that it seems as though the way the human mind actually works is that there's no clear distinction between the processes in charge of how, figuring out how things actually are and the processes of th in charge of thinking about how they ought to be, that there are these processes that are kind of a hybrid of those, sort of a mix or hodgepodge. It's, uh, I mean, I think now it's becoming clearer what's, uh, what's happening here. There are two things. Uh, one is that your, your question and your basic concepts are borrowed from philosophy, so that you are talking about moral judgment infusing uh, cognition. Uh, and, and so you're taking your categories. Basically, there is a sort of psychological assumption that, and, a, and a sort of mechanism where moral judgment and cognitive judgment are still separate, but you are showing, but you are showing that they merge. Mm -hmm. Whereas, as a psychologist, I would, I would immediately question, you know, why, why assume that they are separate in the first place? So, the what makes your question interesting is, 
is the philosophical background that yes. distinguishes sharply between moral judgment and, and factual, between is and ought. Well, I think you're right that it's against the backdrop of this assumption, which we both think is a mistaken assumption, that this result becomes especially interesting. But even though I completely agree with you about what the right answer is, I feel like a lot of researchers in the field of theory of mind, people who are just trying to understand how people ordinarily ascribe mental states, have this fear that a good way to understand how theory of mind works, how people ordinarily make sense of each other's minds, is that it's something kind of like a scientific theory. Well, uh, let's, let's look at another example because I was, uh, I had some, um, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, can you, can you describe the line of research on free will and, and you know, the story, the story that you tell about free will? Right, so um, another sort of really fundamental question that philosophers have often wondered about is about the relationship between free will and determinism. So suppose that everything we're doing is causally determined. Everything we do is just caused by our own mental states, which were in turn caused by previous things, back to some facts about our genes and our environment. Then. Could we still be free? For thousands of years, philosophers have been wondering about this. So one view, which is called incompatibilism, says these two things, freedom and determinism, are incompatible. If everything you do is causally determined, then nothing you do could possibly be done of your free will. But this other view, compatibilism, says that these two things are compatible with each other. So if everything, <coughs> if everything that you do is completely determined, say by your genes and your environment, as long as it was determined in the right way, you could still be doing something that was completely free. So we are wondering, what is the explanation of this long puzzlement we've had about this? And it seems like intuitively an obvious hypothesis is that there are different things within our own minds that are kind of pulling us in these different directions. Something in our mind drawing us toward incompatibilism, but also something in our mind drawing us toward compatibilism. So what we thought is that maybe what's going on in this case is that there's a difference between what happens when you think about the question in the abstract and what happens when you think about the question in the concrete? So if just in the abstract you're thinking, okay, here's the idea of determinism, here's the idea of freedom, are they compatible? Then people think, no. But if you think of one individual person who did something morally bad, then even if you think that person is completely determined, you're still gonna be drawn to the idea that that person's morally responsible for what he did. So in a series of studies, we just tried to vary this dimension of abstractness versus concreteness. So we would tell people about a universe in which everything is completely determined. So everything happens just completely determined by things that happened before. And then in the abstract condition, we would just ask, can anyone in this universe ever be morally responsible for anything they do? People there overwhelmingly tend to say, no, you can't, no one could be morally responsible for anything. And then in the concrete condition, we'd say, imagine this one person who does one morally bad thing in this universe. Is that person morally responsible for what he did? And then people tend to say yes, which obviously is a contradiction with the claim that no one can ever be morally responsible. So I thought was that, it's the tension between these two psychological processes, the processes involved in this kind of abstract cognition and the processes involved in this concrete cognition that are kind of giving rise to this problem, the problem of free will. Uh, now here is you know, a different psychological take on that. Yeah. And the take is that when you ask people a question, they don't necessarily answer the question that you ask them they could very well be answering a neighboring question. So when, when you're asking the question of free will, uh, about a concrete, about a crime, uh, people might answer it in terms of 
how angry they feel. You know, if I blame the person, if I'm angry with the person, if I would like to harm the person, this, there seems to be a different take. I mean, when I read uh, your question, uh, so here is a question that somebody has never gotten before, or, you know, has really not thought deeply about. And so there is no obvious answer. And at least, you know, some of us think that what happens when you ask people a difficult question, if they don't answer it. They answer a different question that's simpler. <clears throat> and on the issue of <clears throat> free will, when it is an emotional issue, that is, when you're angry, when, you know, when there is a crime being committed, what you call emotional salience, uh, there is an alternative view because the, the answer to the question of is the person free or is the person responsible for his action or her actions, you have that answer because you're angry. And you would not be angry if that person were not responsible. So you infer that you think that person is responsible from the fact that you are angry. You, you know, first of all, I don't think that that is the right hypothesis. But, and I'll provide some evidence against it in a second. But suppose we just assume for the second that that is the right hypothesis, attribute substitution. Then do you think this attribute substitution could kind of plug into the basic story that I was offering originally? So I was saying, why has this problem been a problem for thousands of years? Because people are torn in these different directions, depending on whether they think abstractly or concretely. So if you now think the reason they give different answers in the abstract and the concrete is because of attribute substitution, then do you think that could just plug into this basic picture that, that then the reason we've been worried about this for so long and the reason we can't agree about it is because in the concrete we use this very heuristic. But, I mean, this is not the way that you explain it. Yeah, but that is, you know, it's in the same, well, in a, we'll talk about the details in a minute, but it is very much the same as the issue that we discussed, you know, a few minutes ago. Uh, the concepts that you're bringing in are the concepts of philosophy, and you're bringing them unchanged, you know, with, with their baggage. And then you, you, you find, you observe, you discover that uh, there is some relationship between these concepts that shouldn't be there, or that there is a variable that should not be influential, and that is influential. And I do not recall that there is anywhere the possibility that people are really not answering the question that you asked them. If, if you did introduce that possibility, wouldn't it make the philosophy look less interesting? I, I think it wouldn't, but I also think that that possibility is false. So, okay. so the, the alternative that you suggest is that maybe people are being driven by, by anger, that they have this emotional reaction, and that instead of answering the question that, that's really being posed, did he have free will? They're answering this other question, is this outrageous? And I, there are two pieces of evidence against that idea that anger plays any role in. So one is, if you look at participants who have psychological deficit, a deficit in emotional reaction due to frontotemporal dementia. So these are people who experience less emotion than, than you or I would. So they have this systematic deficit in the capacity for emotional response. Then if it was due to emotion, you'd expect the effect that I described to be moderated by this difference between FTD patients and us. But in fact, FTD patients show just as much the tendency to say that these people are morally responsible as participants without FTD do, indicating that 
Whatever it is that makes us do it, it's not the fact that we feel like uh, it on, on that particular line, you know, of, uh, of responsibility, that brings back norm theory. That brings mm -hmm. back normality and abnormality. Yeah. Because as I was reading, you know, that, that evidence, what occurred to me was that uh, when something When something truly unusual happens, we look for truly unusual causes. And uh, I mean, we, we look for responsibility. There is more to explain when the event is extreme. And when the event is extreme and somebody has, has done this, uh, then the, the explanation that it attributes you know, causal, causal efficacy to the agent uh, is much more attractive when the action that you're explaining is unusual and abnormal than mm -hmm. when the action that you're explaining is normal and, and customary. So I had, I, I was toying with two psychological interpretations. But, but you know, that second one is possible too, but tra tragically I think it's also false. So okay. the subsequent studies have checked what happens when people are just asked about someone who just decides to go jogging. So, Imagine you're in a completely deterministic universe, and they just decide to go for a jog. Did you do that of your own free will? This is the least abnormal action. And then people again tend to say, you do that of your own free will. So it really feels like it's something about concreteness. It's something about concreteness per se, not about immoral actions, not about emotion. It's something about really nothing about the abstract question, but thinking about a real individual human being doing something. Oh. No, I can see that. And, and uh, let me think about it for a moment. Here is another way in which, you know, uh, a psychological analysis might come. Uh, it's a purely deterministic will, but when, when I ask the question, was the person free, there's so many different ways, near substitutes to that question. The first and most obvious substitute is, did that person feel free? Mm -hmm. Which is not the same question. It's a very different question, and the answer to it is much less interesting, I think. But, mm -hmm. but it is true that when you are asking the question in the abstract, that interpretation doesn't arise. But when you're asking about concrete actions, that interpretation of the question is the person free in terms of does the person feel free is quite an attractive uh, interpretation. No, now, no. That could be false as well. <laughs> Wait, that's really helpful. I don't know if you'll think that this new um, data point sort of helps to eliminate the issue, but there's been a really nice series of studies on this topic by Dylan Murray and Eddie Namias. So they took the cases that we used and asked people a different question about them. It's not the question, is the person free? It's the question, does the action that the person performed depend in any way on what the person wanted or thought or decided? So you might think if everything's deterministic, it still does depend on that. It's, it depends on that because it goes in a deterministic chain through that very thing. But in any case, when people are given the abstract question in this whole universe, does, it, does the thing that you do depend on your beliefs and desires and values? People say no. But in the concrete case, they tend to say yes. Yeah. So at least I have this sense that whatever difference is obtained between the abstract and the concrete, in that case, it could be due to attribution substitution of some kind, but not due to people thinking, well, what this person's really asking me is, does the person feel free?
No, it's not what this person asking me. I oh, mean, yeah, I, you know, the attribute substitution, which is a is a psychologically richer concept than mm -hmm. this. So, you know, if uh, there are those experiments which ask people first uh, how many dates did you have last month, and then they ask you how happy you are, and there is a very high correlation between the mm -hmm. number of dates and how happy you are, uh, which when you ask the questions in reverse order, you don't find that correlation. Now, this clearly indicates that people use their happiness in the romantic field that you have just evoked to answer the question of how happy are you in general. They're not confused. They know the difference between, uh, between happy in general and happy in the romantic area. They know the difference, but they answer one question in terms of the other without being aware of the substitution. So it's not that they're conceptually confused. So in the kinds of questions that you ask, some of the questions that you ask very naturally evoke alternative questions, neighboring questions. And somehow, and, and this is more likely to happen clearly in the concrete case than in the abstract case. And so, Again, what strikes me is that you don't start from the psychology of it. What I'm trying to get at is that you are starting from an array of conceptual, from, from some concepts that are drawn from philosophy. And you're using these concepts in a psychological discourse or in a discourse about you know, the psychology of intuitions. And there seems to be a characteristic difference, and this is what I'm trying to draw out of you, uh, between this way of thinking about experimental philosophy and, and the approach that is purely psychological to, to the same questions. But if, if you started as a psychologist, you would, you would look at these very complicated, very abstract questions, and you would say, that's what at least I'm inclined to say, these questions are truly impossible. There must be, people must be doing something to make them intelligible to themselves and to answer it. And, and then let's try to figure out what is the nearest that we can come to a coherent description of how people answer this question in this context and that question in the other context. You know, that's, that strikes me as, as a natural way for a psychologist to go at your questions, and it is not what you're doing. So I'm, that's, that's what makes me curious, is what is the difference between the way that we approach it? It's an interesting question. So I think in general, if you look at the processes that we invoke in order to explain these questions, then they are psychological processes of a general sort. It's not that we are tending to invoke special philosophical processes. And I feel like our discussion that we just had about the interface of intentional action really had that character, that what we were suggesting is that the process that explains this result is just a general fact about how people understand norms and how people compare what actually happened to what's normal. But then I think maybe where the two of us parted ways is in thinking about what's exciting about that or what's interesting about it, that I was thinking the fact that people use this process, the process that I think we both think people use, I guess I found it exciting or interesting against the backdrop of this much larger sort of philosophical framework that not 
not that it didn't seem like we disagreed about why people show this pattern of responses. It's that I felt like, in a way that maybe you didn't, that um, we, we can sort of think about what's interesting about that by thinking about how the fact that people use this psychological process is interesting against the backdrop of this philosophical framework that a lot of people have I mean, accepted. Uh, this, is, this is, I think, where we're at the nub of, of the question. In a way, that is, you come from philosophy, so there is a certain thing that's that of interest to you. And you want to convey two things at once, that the question is exciting, and that you have something new to say about it. Uh, and it is true that I, as a psychologist, would come to the same question and I'd say, oh, this is an impossible question. <laughs> so, and those are two impossible questions and I certainly would not expect people to answer them in any way that is coherent. So my, my first assumption coming to it as a psychologist is that there is no coherence. You agree with me that there is no coherence, but what makes it exciting from the point of view of philosophy is that there is no coherence, right, right. I think. Whereas, as a psychologist, I take it for granted that there is no coherence, so it's less exciting. So well, that, yeah. that could be one of the differences between yeah, that, That's very, really helpful. So uh, obviously, the thing that we should is not just that it is incoherent, but along which dimension it is incoherent, that it seems like there was evidence already that there's something pulling us toward one side and something pulling us toward the other side, and then we want to know which thing, which thing is pulling us toward one side and to the other side. And we suggested it's this difference between abstract thinking and concrete thinking. But I agree that part of the reason why you might care about that is because you might just care about the question about whether human beings have free will. So if you find yourself untroubled by those questions. So you just think, oh, much, I'm, I'm, I, I could be deeply troubled by this question if I could imagine an answer to it. But the only question to which I can imagine an answer is, well, there's a set of questions. When do people feel free? That's a very exciting psychological mm -hmm. question. When do people think that other people are free? It's a different question, mm -hmm. also quite exciting. Uh, but, but those are psychological questions, and I would not assume any coherence. Oh, so you're saying that the, that the fact that people's own intuitions contradict each other, against a certain backdrop, you would say, of course people's intuitions contradict each other. Right. Why would you have thought otherwise? And, I'm and if you're a philosopher, you would never say, of course they contradict each other. You know, it's really interesting that you bring up that specific point. I feel like there's a real tradition within philosophy of thinking that there are these tensions that we seem to experience, this puzzlement that we get into each other, into, but that if we could just see the situation clearly, if we, we could understand clearly what's going on, then we'd see that everything coheres beautifully with, each, with, uh, with everything, everything else. And then that idea that it's clarity that we'll get out of this is the idea that we are fighting against. In this case, it seems like the more you understand clearly what's going on, the more you see how just genuinely puzzling it is, that there really is something pulling in one direction and something else pulling in another direction. And it's not as though those two things can be well, I mean, yeah, this, this is truly an interesting point because as a psychologist, uh, the philosophers, really the basic assumption is there is coherence. There is some underlying coherence and the task of the philosopher is to discover it. Uh, as a psychologist, and that really is the theme of our conversation, if you think about it throughout, as a psychologist, I just don't make that assumption. 
That is, it's obvious to me in every context, including statistical intuitions, moral intuitions, you know, physical intuitions. They're not coherent. We have all sorts of intuitions, and, and if you try to connect them logically, they're not consistent. And, I mean, it's interesting, you know, to, but, but it's a very general effect. Wait, you know, I wonder if you'd accept the following way of thinking about it. That I feel like um, when people are thinking about these questions psychologically, I almost feel like there are these two different forces at work in their way of thinking about them. So one is just the data. So people are trying to make sense of the data. And as they look at the data, they tend to be drawn toward this kind of view, the view that I think best fits with the data, that there's something incoherent within people, or to take our other example, that there's no clear division between people's prescriptive judgments and their descriptive judgments. These things are just mixed in some way. And the reason they're drawn to those views is just because that's the best explanation of the available evidence. But then I think there's this other force that really plays a role in people's way of thinking about these, these questions, which isn't, which isn't a force specifically among people in philosophy departments or people in psychology, psychology departments, but it's something that takes hold of people when they just start to think at a more abstract level about how this stuff works. That I think people are drawn, when they think in this abstract level, to think, but there's just got to be this fundamental distinction between how people think about the way the world actually is and how people, people think about morality. Or that they think there's got to be some underlying competence that's perfectly coherent that is somehow shrouded over in some ways by these distorting factors. And then um, there's sort of a, um, a role that you can play as a theorist of just taking the thing that seems to be given by the evidence and that people would naturally create a model that fits at, on the, at the level of this evidence, and reasserting that at the level of this abstract theory, of just saying, we should really believe this thing. The thing that is given by the evidence is the thing we should really believe. We shouldn't abandon it when we start to think more abstractly about these questions. That it seems like there's something, even among psychologists, that draws people toward thinking about these, thinking about things in, I think, this incorrect way when you start to think about them more abstractly, as opposed to just trying to develop a model that predicts the data that you have developed. Maybe you don't feel that force within you. No, I'm, I'm not sure I do. That is, uh, I think, you know, personally in my, in my own career, I've made probably a lot of mileage out of the fact that people's intuitions are not coherent. I mean, you know, and, and it's true that uh, the response to the work that Mastversky and I did, uh, you know, the surprise there was because basically we're showing time and time again that intuitions are not coherent. Uh, now I have internalized that and it's not surprising to me anymore. I think it is not very surprising to, to psychologists. So I think what is very interesting about experimental, uh, experimental philosophy as against experimental psychology is that when you start from that point of view, when you start from the assumption of coherence, the, the discovery of incoherence, and you phrase it still in the terms in which it should have been coherent and it isn't. If you think that abstract questions and concrete questions are really completely different, that is, that people actually, when they think about ensembles or when they think about categories or about abstractions, are doing something entirely different, uh, then uh, there is less puzzlement or it is different. We're asking a different question. You know, I, I think that it might be instructive just to think about what, how it is that people most often reply within psychology to the kind of work that we are doing in experimental philosophy. And I think 
so people raise alternative explanations just the way that you have raised them. But the alternatives that people are normally worried about are really different, I think, from the ones that you're worried about. That I think um, the, the worries you have are almost kind of the converse of the worries that people usually have. So the usual kind of worry, the endless kind of replies that I've been trying to beat back in my own work, are that somehow, as it were, deep down in people's um, minds is this thing that's beautifully coherent and perfectly scientific and so forth. And then there's just some annoying, distorting force that's kind of getting in the way of them expressing it correctly. Then if only we could come up with a way of kind of getting rid of that distorting force, then the inner, coherent, perfectly scientific kind of understanding that they have all along would be able to shine forth. And people who say this don't just say it in the abstract in the way that I just said. They, they propose you know, very specific things that would be yeah. the distorting force. They really are testable. I mean, I, uh, I agree entirely that mm -hmm. that intuition and the search for coherence is not restricted to philosophers. Mm -hmm. I would also add that you know, the reaction that you are getting from psychologists is that I think that many psychologists are flattered by the idea that philosophers would do psychology. I mean, it's mm -hmm. still, uh, there's, there's something, you know, <laughs> oh yeah, you're finding our work useful, our approach to the world useful. This is a compliment to us and it, it colors our reaction to our work. I have another question mm -hmm. of, uh, of the same kind, and that's um, and that has to do with with consciousness. Just describe, you know, the the, the consciousness versus knowledge distinction that oh, yeah. that you advance. If you could just explain it. Right. So we are interested in the question about um, a distinction between two different kinds of psychological states. So it seems like um, on one hand there are states like believing something, wanting something, intending something. On the other hand. There are states like experiencing pain, feeling happy, feeling upset. So sometimes people say that, the philosophers say that those second kinds of states have this quality of phenomenal consciousness, phenomenal consciousness. And then a the question is, what, what do you have to have in order to have those kind of states to really be able to feel something? And then one kind of view you might have is that uh, you have to just be able to respond in a certain way to your world or something. That's what makes you be conscious. But then another way is that it's something about what you're actually like physically. And it's that idea that we thought might be onto something in terms of explaining people's intuitions, that there's something about our embodiment, the fact that we have bodies, that makes people think that we're capable of having those states. So we tested in a number of different ways, but just to give one simple example, suppose you think about the difference between a person and a corporation. So think about the difference between, you know, um, between Bill Gates and Microsoft. So you might say, you can say Bill Gates uh, believes that profits will increase. And you can also say something like, Bill Gates is feeling depressed. You can say, Bill Gates intends to release a new product. And you can also say something like, Bill Gates is experiencing true joy. But then if you ask about Microsoft, only one of those is possible. You could say, Microsoft intends to release a new product. It's fine. Microsoft believes profits will increase. That's also fine. Microsoft is feeling depressed. It's not good. Microsoft is experiencing great joy. It's not good. And you get that for all of these different kinds of states that Corporations seem to have all of those states that don't seem to require phenomenal consciousness, but they lack all of the ones that do require phenomenal consciousness. And across many different comparisons, not just between people and corporations, it seems like it's this embodiment. It's seeing something as having a body that makes you, you see that it has having those kinds well, of states. A couple of things. About corporations, mm -hmm. uh, we have some rules about you know, how we attribute states of mind to corporations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, did the CIA know something? And, you know, who. And now, when you actually unpack this, 
uh, it's not the CIA knowing, it's some people within the CIA. Uh, and who are the people within the CIA who have to know something before the CIA can be said to know something? This is to know that thing. Uh, that's a set of very interesting questions, but they're more, I think, about about the use, the application of states of mind to corporations than, Wait, than so about the deep philosophical question. I was more interested in robots. Oh, can yeah. You tell, can you tell? Yeah. Oh, so you get the same exact effects when you turn to robots, that if you have a robot that's just like you, say there was like RoboDanny, and the, on all psychological tests, the robot would just answer exactly the same thing that you would answer. So if the robot, we asked it, have you ever experienced true love? The robot would answer and give the exact same answer that you, you gave. Now if we say, does that robot know a lot about prospect theory? People say, absolutely. Does um, the robot think that it's in the midst of a videotaped interview? Absolutely. But then if you said, can the robot feel happy? People tend to say, no. So the robot acts just like you do, but people would say it doesn't really feel anything. And it seems the key difference now between the robot and you is entirely a physical one. It's just that the robot acts just like you, but it's just made of metal. Uh. Here, I differ. So I have, a, I have an alternative hypothesis, mm -hmm. which I think is eminently testable. Mm -hmm. uh, you now have robots that have facial expressions. If you have a smiling robot, a robot that you know, just smiles appropriately and cries appropriately and does, expresses emotions appropriately, people would attribute emotions to that robot just as they do to other people, I think. Yeah, I so. Uh, uh, you know, we attribute emotion to animals without really asking the questions of whether they feel it or not. It's just whether the expressions is, is mm -hmm. compelling. So if you had a robot uh, who uh, would answer some questions with a shaky voice, or would express it with a tense voice, or with an angry voice, you would be very easily convinced that that robot has feelings. Because the attribution of feelings really derives from from some physical cues that we get about emotions, which we have learned from our own emotions and the emotions of people around us, you know, when, when we were children. So I think almost the same thing that you just said. I think it's not whether you believe that this thing is biological, whether you believe that something has a body, it's whether the thing has certain kind of cues to trigger you on this non-conscious level to think of it, the thing, biologically. So, you know, this table we don't think of biologically. A human being we do think of biologically, but it's not just that we believe that the human being is something biological. It's that even if something wasn't biological, like this example you gave, that this, if it moved in a certain way, if it made certain kinds of noises, it could trigger us to think that it's biological. So to test that hypothesis, that it's not about your belief that the thing has a body, but it's about how much you're thinking of it as being embodied. We ran a study with human beings, and then we tried to just manipulate the degree to which people think of human beings as embodied, to the degree to which we think of human beings as having a body. So the way we do this is just by showing people pictures of human beings in various states of undress. So just like this, or taking their clothes off, or these pornographic pictures of people. So just as you might expect, if you look at those first kinds of states I was talking about, states like the ability to reason, health, self-control, and so forth, the more you see someone as having a body, the more you see, see them, the less you see them as having any of those states. But with regard to these other states, the capacity to feel afraid, to feel upset, to experience pleasure, to feel happy, the more you take off your clothes, the more you're seen as having those kinds of states. So it seems like 
there is something to, to what you're saying, that it's not just your knowledge of whether the person has a body, but I think what the, the sort of subliminal cue is, the kind of uh, you know, quick cues that you're picking up are, it's not cues to something having emotions directly, it's cues to it being biological, cues to it having a body. And a robot could give off cues to having a body. Yeah, so I think we, we probably are fairly close to agreement on, although, again, you know, the language that you use to describe the findings is a fairly different language. Oh, yeah, so you're it's saying... It's very abstract, and it derives, yeah. from, it derives from another field. You know, I think that's the right way of thinking about it, as we keep going through each of these different things. I always feel like we're supposed to be getting into a fight, but then our fight never really materializes. But then I think it's because it's not really at the level of the cognitive mechanism underlying each finding that no, you're... No, we agree on those. It's, it's sort of at this... Level of, ooh, I don't know. What's interesting? What's interesting? It, it really is a, it's a, it's a, it's a difference in almost mm -hmm. tastes. And, and clearly it reflects our backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for, I discovered as a, as a teenager, actually, that's what drew me into, psych, into psychology, that I was more interested in indignation than I was interested in ethics. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, oh, you know, yeah. that's, you know, so that's, when you come from that direction, you have a different mindset than when you come from ethics to indignation. It's very different from what happens when you go from indignation to ethics. Let's consider an analogy in this other field. So I feel like a lot of times in behavioral economics, people try to show that a certain effect is interesting because they, show, because they try to show it differs from what you do if you're engaged in rational choice theory. Absolutely. But then that seems very puzzling because why would you ever think people would do that? Right. Why is that kind of like that? So then you might think, in order for something to be interesting, it should be differing from whatever priors I had given previous research or something, not from rational choice theory. So do you think rational choice theory somehow is playing an analogous role? I agree. I mean, I think that's a beautiful analogy. I hadn't seen it as clearly before as I see it now. I mean, it's very clear that we use economics in the same way. That is, it's the background. And, and then, you know, we use it as a source of null hypotheses. We draw some concepts from it. Uh, but ultimately, to pursue the analogy a little further, the term, a term like preference or belief, uh, they have a particular meaning within rational choice theory. The correct psychological answer is that in those terms, there are no preferences and there are no beliefs, because whatever states of mind we have do not fulfill the conditions, that the logical conditions for being preferences or being beliefs. And uh, so I, in a way, as a psychologist, I'm sometimes there, and sometimes mm -hmm. I argue with economists, and I, and I do exactly the same thing that you do. Right, so the analogy is, is an excellent one.